my guest, LB Muniz. How you doing? I'm doing well, Caleb. Thanks for having me. It's no problem. Thanks for coming on. You are the uh, last person who was associated with the, I know it's a moment, not a movement, but the post-libertarian people. Like everyone that's in that whole group, you were the last person I've yet to have on a, on a podcast. So you, you, I, I got the set. I've completed it all. <laughs> I guess I'm I guess I'm excited to be a collector's item. Uh, <laughs> um, it's going to be fun because uh, I really like everyone in that group. Like everyone there has been on, been a golf fun. Um, really, might mean besides reading Wasp, I'm getting those red pills. And we, maybe we burn them, get those red pills. You guys, that entire group has been made so in my basically figure out what books to read next. Yeah. <laughs> all come from that group. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, that would be that would be a fun thing to explore. Well, you do a lot of um, if you don't mind my, you do a lot of book reviews, right? Yep. Yeah. It's, that's, it's mainly mainly a book club podcast. Yeah, I think that's such a cool idea. Like just as a as a concept, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, and I sometimes I like I'm trying to do more like reviews and stuff because it's it's like well it's an excuse for uh you know it's an excuse for maybe watching more TV than I should in a day. Uh, that's kind of the way I look at it. But um, but yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to get into writing reviews. I have a website of uh, Austriatomism, the self plug here. Um, Austriatomism, where I have bunch of the Catholic writing saying, I, I'm trying to put out a new book with you. It's every book I read, but trying to do prep for the podcast and take all the same notes to try to turn it into an article is not as easy as I thought it would be. Oh yeah. It's, it's definitely a process. I mean, that was, that was, I mean, I started, I was one of the, I'm one of these people I've always thought of myself as a writer and now I feel like I can actually kind of say that. I always thought I had the chops and, but like when I was in school and everything, it was, I'm a, I'm a, I am still a consummate procrastinator. I've just improved a little bit, but like, you know, I, I just, it was something where like, oh yeah, I said I could write, but then I was never doing it. And, and it was, it took, it took a while. And even now, like I kind of, I've realized now that it comes in waves as far as the creativity and I love podcasting. It's very fun. And the conversations are nice because it's kind of how we're designed, but there's something extra about actually sitting down and saying, not only am I going to like try to express an idea I'm having, but I'm going to try and express it as exactly as I can get it. Uh, that the writing process really, really, it, it is, I think, and it's not that we don't write because we write all day, every day. We're always typing out our thoughts and messages and things like that. But like the, the physical process of like, of, of trying to compile ideas into a coherent uh, piece, right? Like something that is actually meant to be consumed by a broad audience. That is, um, it's it's something that I was I'm sh I'm still kind of shocked at how much it's helped me in other areas of even of just um you know just being more diligent and working on and you know just just the follow through aspect and really making that a habit. And it's, it's something about why like when you're on a podcast if you mess up make a mistake it's kind of like oh I was in a conversation I forgot I made a mistake I'm not married to what I've said and in writing I feel like anything I write down I'm married to that now I have to like if it's good it's good if it's bad I have to defend it or delete it mm -hmm. or make revisions to it later like the idea of being like I know authors who have put out books and 20 years later they're still like adding revisions to those same books yeah and it's like I don't want to do that I don't I don't want to be married to anything I want to be mm -hmm. with the outside family I want to be able to have my work be able to touch and go if I want to drop something drop it you know yeah writing uh, presents a little problem there. <laughs> well, and you, and you point out that it is the case that people will like contradict them or not even contradict thoughts evolve over time. Right. So if you say one thing at one time, that doesn't mean you have to believe exactly that for the rest of your life. Right. It's um, it's I mean, you can right? there's nothing stopping you from doing that. But like it's 
the process, one thing I had to work on, and I've made the joke that I think college was one of the worst things for my writing career. Uh, and the re and the reason for that isn't like, you know, we could spend time bashing the current collegiate system, but you know, most of the people I met were decent enough. Like I don't harbor ill will against any one professor that I had. Right. Um, but to the point is there was something about, I think, and you know, just school in general, but there was something about having to make something perfect so that you can get an A that um, for me personally was something that I was, that was like troublesome. And so like, then I would procrastinate and then like do it at the last minute and get a B and you're like, Oh, okay. So at least I got a B. Um, but like what I found is if, but when I removed like perfection from the idea of something that I write, my stuff has typos sometimes. Like I, I, I try to edit, I try to copy edit, but I do everything myself and just kind of being comfortable with the idea that I'm going to make mistakes and understanding that instead of perfection, I'm working on consistency, the actual pro the actual process, the actual doing of the thing. Uh, I found that to be the most, I found that to be one of the things that really helped me from a mindset perspective, get in the frame to where like, again, when I started the project a lot, I was doing like four articles a week and then doing a podcast every Friday. And it was a lot of fun because there was a huge backlog of stuff that I had been meaning to talk about for a long period of time. And now it's a little now it's now I'm more like now I'm kind of in a stage where I'm trying to go deeper and like go back to original texts so that I can reinterpret them and re and like make sure that the actual theory that I'm developing and that I'm developing theories or concepts or for tools for people to use, which is part of like the process of what I do is making sure that those are grounded in as uh, strong of concepts as I can make them. On a point about uh, being okay with like making a mistake or being wrong, like one of the sayings for this podcast is, "I'm going to be wrong. I don't know what I don't know." Um, I started the podcast mainly because I don't know anything. I didn't like college, and I wanted to talk to smart people and learn things. So I mm -hmm. started the podcast, and um, I think maybe that's why I, I am so much more calm. I see a lot of people that's just out about things. I'm like, I don't know anything. I know I don't know anything. I'm happy with not knowing what I don't know and going from there. I see people who are like, "I gotta make everything the exact details right." I'm like. I don't know anything. Yeah. Like, and that's my starting point. That's, I think that's, it comes to bail, yeah. yeah. And, and that's, I think that's the right starting point for people to have. And that's why I call myself a practicing skeptic, right? So I'm like, anything that I develop is developed within a frame of skepticism, which is to say that I could be wrong about something and just real, and, and that doesn't mean I, that doesn't mean I don't believe things, right? And that doesn't mean you can't believe things. It just means you realize you could be wrong. And, grasping that position is not it is something that i don't well it's it could probably be measured in like openness from at, at a psychological level right but it's also but it's it's something that is like it's ne more natural in some people than it is in others so like because for other people the idea that like foundational principles and concepts could for the ordering of the world could be incorrect more importantly the ones that you believe could be incorrect like it's not called existential dread for nothing, right? Like it is the case that first, it is the case that there's a, there's a, you know, a distribution of people who are more comfortable with these ideas and others. And I tend to resonate more with people who are, who are open to new ideas because that's something I like to do. I like to explore it. Like I could come, I could do the, I could do like the preaching thing that's, and I'm not trying to disrespect like anybody who's, who is a preacher or a priest or a reverend or anything like that. But like, that's not exact, like, there's an element of that of like trying to teach people, but I'm more, but again, the exploration is what drives it for me and trying to see where it, where, where it goes. Well, so, this yeah, is, this, this is a divide. I've noticed that it's really just two kinds of like libertarian 
I guess, a, li- a libertarian hypothesis. You went that liberty space, you know, you're in the liberty circle. Um, you're either a scholar type, in which case you just want to demagogue and be right and teach, which definitely not seen as good things for that. And then there's, a, I would say, the more philosopher type, which is having to explore ideals. Mm-hmm. Like I would put everyone in Mises Institute with a scholar type and they're great at it. I love everybody there. I put you guys in the post-libertarian area moment, more like the philosopher type. Where you'll, you know you don't know this thing. You're going to try to explore ideas and go from there. I think that's, that's really a divide is the scholar types and the philosopher types. And both have value by trying to figure out what's one you want to do and what's one you want to have to go down the path is the thing they important thing to figure out. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like if well, and and what I love about the Mises Institute is their dedication to teaching, right? There, the reality is, is that in a marketplace, there's going to be a place for both of those things. Um, you know, like the I don't know. I call what I do sense making because I don't I, because it's too uh, presumptuous to call myself a philosopher, uh, and, and because it's not because it's not exactly philosophy. Sometimes I do philosophy, but most of the time I'm doing news analysis. I don't, you know, but I won't pretend to not enjoy doing both of them. Um, so, you know, I've just always had the interest in, I've, I've just always had the interest in politics really. Exactly. And that's, you know, yeah. I want to get to that. Exactly. What sense making? I like the idea. What exactly do you mean when you say you're in a business like sense making? So I first heard the term from either Brett or Eric Weinstein when the, I, when the intellectual dark web was kind of becoming something of, a, you know, approaching a phenomenon. And I had never really come, I had never come in contact with like that. I like understood the idea of what a sense is, right? Your, your five senses. I understood the idea of making something. And I understood that if we're talking about sense making, we're talking about like making, having things make, make sense, right? Like making sure that they cohere in such a way that we can understand an idea, a concept or a principle. Um, But so then I find, so, so I heard them talking about it and they were always talking about it in terms of our sense making apparatuses are undefined. So, the sense-making apparatus is any, really any media outlet. Like I take in the raw information from the news cycle and I give it a perspective and I give it a narrative effect that helps you understand it better because there is like, because as I like in a, in the philosophical sense, I'm really interested in the subjectivity of like existence, but like, which is to say like, what is that? What is the minute differences between how you and I perceive the same physical object? Like right now, you and I are both looking at a screen. We're both looking at a camera. We're both looking at each other or ourselves, as the case may be. Like, but like, we're also not looking at the exact same things, and we're definitely in different places. Um, so there's so so it, it comes from that standpoint of of trying to realize that. So a sense making apparatus is something that takes all that information and try to turn it into a something that you can consume to understand the world around you whether that is your immediate world or perhaps the, the larger world that you have no interaction with to begin with. And so what I try to do at beenawake.com is better sense making. I'm trying to make better sense of things like, of mostly like the news cycle and right. And so there's like media critiques that go into that of how stories are covered. But so that's, that's like the process that I try to do over there. And it's, it's kind of, it's something that I've just been doing for a while and I think it's I think it's helpful. And it's and it's for me, I like the teaching aspect of it, too. So I enjoy kind of like trying to say, OK, there's these intuitions I have. And like, let me actually make this into something that I think could be could, could, people could use. I like that. That makes sense to me. Huh? You mentioned the IDW in that. Like, what's your take? I, I have some. The IDW basically what got me into like 
besides Vince Pito got me deep in like philosophy and that kind of stuff. And even though I critique uh, a lot of them now loosely, I, I did a time podcast yesterday on this on, on Brett and Eric Weinstein. The problem was, you know, I do like Brett. Like I think out of all the IW people, Brett is the best one. Um, that's exactly. What, of all the IW people, what's one you think is like the best one? What's the most cleanse one? Because the really just the, the best kinds. The best and the worst. Um, yeah, more best and worst. I mean, yeah, best and worst would do. Well. <laughs> So, I mean, I guess, you know, it depends on who you kind of include in that. But I, you know, I think that first network effect where like the Weinstein brothers, Heather Hyen, Brett's wife, um, Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro. Um, uh, blah, 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 Sam Dave, yeah, Sam Harris, Dave Rubin. And I think that I think that covers it pretty well. Uh, and so for I'm personally and I I. I almost feel bad saying this because I, I, I can't even say I have a good enough sample size, but like what I've listened to from Sam Harris just doesn't do it for me. Um, and I have one of my closest friends is a big fan of Sam Harris. I know a few people who are like really, really into him that I'm friends with. It's just for me, the uh, well, I mean, specifically the politics aspect of it, but just in, but also his also like his, his insistence upon truth being this cold, heartless thing. Um, and it just in general, I have always taken before there was a Jordan Peterson position, I was always kind of in that. Uh, I was always kind of heading in that direction with the way that I was interpreting the world. He just kind of, he kind of like came to the fore and was like, oh yeah, here, here actually is this way of culminating. Cause I was reading, I always thought Jung was cool. I never read much of him, but I was reading a lot of Nietzsche around the time that Jordan Peterson like released his Bill C-16 video. Um, I look at, you know, a lot of times, we kind of gamify. We we talk, a lot of times we gamify these situations. Or I don't know what the right word is, but there's this thing of like, well, it's the it's the political angle, I suppose, of like what side do you end up being on? And there's a there's while there is certainly a place for that, I also try to look at people in terms of what I can learn from them. And there's really no sides in that situation. Um, oh, and then you would also include like Peter Bergozin, James Lindsay, Heather Pluckrose as well, probably in that IDW group that came along pretty soon thereafter. So I guess if it was best and worst, it would kind of be Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. Certainly I'd say like, I don't, I don't even, I, I wouldn't even say I, I'm like, I'm familiar enough with what Sam Harris is producing now to like want to comment publicly in yeah. a disrespectful way. Um, but suffice it to say like what I've seen, I haven't loved uh, in a, in a lot of the stuff. Um but yeah, and then I, got, I was a huge Jordan Peterson fan, and I still am. I, I mean, I think that while I don't agree with his more recent takes post-lockdowns, um, that also is kind of the reason why I wrote like the post-libertarian moment to find and why I started writing again, uh, writing at binawake.com and doing a podcast again is because like, no, it's different. Like this was an inflection point. This is something that is going to change the future and frankly, he strikes me as somebody who, as I detail in the essay, but is like living in a moment, right? I like, I don't think <laughs> I like it's, I, I don't think we're going to, I don't think the decade, not to be too predictive, but I don't think the decade will see the nation state survive. Like the, the nation state won't survive the, the next decade. I don't, I mean, I, maybe some will, right. But it won't be the nation state model that was established uh, after world war one. Right. We might say and like solidified in World War Two. So basically America's rise to the top of the heap. That's not going to be what the world looks like when 2030 comes. And I think um, 
And the scary thing is, is now that doesn't sound crazy because that's something we, I, myself, and I know a lot of people, but myself in particular has been talking about for like five, almost 10 years, you know, it is not this idea in particular, but when I did my first project, I, I was specifically saying that, the, that a collapse was going to come. And what mattered in that moment was what ideas were there to fill it. And I think we're even closer to that kind of a thing. You could argue we're already past the inflection, like the beginning of it. Um, and so that's why it matters the ideas and the way that we're talking about it. And that relates to libertarians. That relates to the, I mean, like politics is, politics is something you're going to have to worry about now because they're going after your bank account. If you're not, if, if you have the wrong politics, we are, not far away from that position. And, and like, that's a serious thing. And so to pretend that an anti-politics position, right. And, and again, this is, this is a position that I've held for a long, long time to pretend that that is like something you can hold on to right now, I think is foolish. And I think is, and I think the people who are more likely to do that are people for whom the system is working out for well currently. Right. And like, you know, and for and then in the case of somebody like Jordan Peterson, he still gets to go and make his tour. Right. A lot of people have complained about the fact that he's going to perform in cities that ha I, I don't know this for sure, but I've seen it, I've seen reports of it where there are going to be some kind of uh, passport mandates, that there is going to be an internal passport. And having something like that in the United States is just wrong. You know, absolutely. You know, it's, I, I, I do. I think we're past the uh, we're past the click. You know, we'll pass the. Now it's just waiting for what to happen. You know, trying to do what we can. The way, like, I'm actually, I'm working on my first uh, major piece that's about stoicism and, and riding the wave and that kind of thing. Um, mm. uh, when the tide of cool saints, it's made a lot of fun. But anyway, that's for later conversation. Um, like you know, you're 100 right. Like the idea that we can just abandon politics right now, I don't think. Um, I think we should abandon federal politics in a sense. I think that's like a more of a waste of time. But when I got dog with an Agus friend of mine. And he was saying that um, used to be used to be building up the community. I'm like, what do you think I'm doing? I'm trying to get local laws up here. And I'm trying to get local things better so people can do things more freely here and create a local city state that is going to survive things. Like I'm doing what you say I'm doing. I'm just working with the existing infrastructure instead of you know taking over a new making a new infrastructure. And he's like, okay, that that makes sense. That actually works. He was, he was a sensible activist, but not many of those. Um, I have I, I, I love Jose, I love all the agorists, but someone in my on Twitter, I have a policy on Twitter. If you if you have an autistic response to a tweet, I block you. And I block majority of agorists. Because they they're so autistically bound to their principles, they respond really dumbly to tweets. And it's just like that's not what's been around. Yeah, and that's you know, that's that's just what ideological possession or or a more dogmatic approach to the world looks like. You know, and and and, and in some instances it's worthwhile it's a worthwhile perspective uh but to your point is like what does it actually mean to build community right and and like and you can kind of do both um yeah i just don't i just don't think that there's any i don't think that there's any time for that if you want to if you want to operate completely outside of outside of like quote unquote the system more power to you um i just don't i just take exception to the idea of an anti-politics position or the idea that like or the really the morality that 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 school of thought offers. I just I've I never I've never enjoyed it. I don't think it's um I, I just don't get it. <laughs> I guess I think I think morality is is left for elsewhere and not not the realm of legality, yeah. right? Makes sense. 
you mentioned um, the responsibility of the microphone on a podcast. Mm. Can you go into a little bit more? That, that idea sounds uh, interesting. Yeah, it was, you know, I sometimes like, honestly, sometimes things just come to me in the moment and it sounds good. Um, but, but it's, but it's something that I mean, that I'm meaning to say the, um, so like, you know, I've, I, there's other, other formulations, right? Like the magic of the microphone, the power of the microphone. And, and in the moment, this was on my recent appear, appearance on counterflow. I just kind of said like the responsibility of the microphone in particular, what I mean by that is like when I'm doing what i'm doing i'm not just like venting because because that would be easy like venting is not a difficult thing to do as it relates to politics and in fact that like venting aspect of um political analysis you know there's there's a place for it and i should maybe make one qualifier which is say i I will sometimes do that on on twitter but when i'm writing and when i'm trying and like usually I try to be funny or have like a play on words and I don't stop at just getting angry at a question, at a story, at something that happens. So really like, so what that means, what the responsibility of the microphone means to me is that when I'm putting out content, I am trying to speak carefully right now. Does that mean every time I'm on a microphone that I am like doing that? No. Right. Like sometimes I might be doing something that's more casual you know, trying to have, you know, just having fun with somebody being, you know, it's not like I don't like to have, uh, you know, like to shoot the, to shoot the breeze with people. Small talk is great. It's not, it's, um, so it was just in the moment, it was just kind of the idea of like what, what we do as podcasters or like, what are you doing with your show? Right. You know, like if you're doing a book review, like, you know, make sure that you've actually read it. Right. Or at least read enough of it to have, to have a good opinion on it. There's a few exactly. episodes where you can't tell why I skimmed the book. Yeah. I, I have those episodes. I look at them like, ah, that's a bit on that one. Yeah. And so there's just it's the idea of like, I, I think I'm putting out a product that's good enough for people to consume over at binawake.com. And, you know, it's something that I take seriously. And so I take it on as a responsibility. So that's, that's why that's kind of what I meant by that mm-hmm. term. And you know what I mean when I'm talking about like responsibility in the context. I think it was, um, you know, it's probably too long, but you mentioned you recently read, um, you know, recently, I thought when the podcast came out, but, um, Brett Weinstein and his wife's new book, the, mm-hmm. um, what's the thing of it? Cause I'm thinking about picking it up. I'd highly recommend it. Um, I've had an interest in evolutionary biology ever since I heard Walter Block talking about it. And like when I was watching essays and lectures of his back in, that would have been 2012, 2013 uh, was when I probably was like watching a lot of those, a lot of that stuff. So I'd heard about like evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, and really just, you know, as all these different things happen, you also see like Gad Sad, again, Jordan Peterson, Brett Weinstein, Heather Hine, and others who were using this lens, this, this method by which you could view the world. And it really spoke, it really speaks to me as, as, and it was, I found it to be really interesting so much. So frankly, that like I used to take a far less biological viewpoint. Like I used, this is, this is like one of those pieces that I've been meaning to write. Um, But like, you know, when people, when people would bring up a study that was done on rats of like how they found X behavior or Y behavior. And I would say like, yeah, but we're not rats. And I could like, I could defend that position well enough, right? It's not it like it, that you can defend that position rhetorically. And I feel really silly for making arguments like that now. Um, 
not to say I ever was like rude or, or, you know, even like dis dismiss the entire point. I would just always want to get it in there of like how we're a little bit different than rats. And probably because that's because I didn't really understand like biological implications or, or thinking about that on an evolutionary scale. So I thought the book was really, really good. I mean, um, there's a couple of concepts that I want to cover on been awake, uh, that they talk about, but you know, one of the big ones is they, um, they list the conditions for something to be an adaptive behavior. And I'm not even going to try to remember them, but there, there's four of them. And just those little toolkits that they put in really does help uh, help expand and give you a, a means of analysis that is, um, well, that is scientific, right? And is rational. Um, and But also is, I think, truthfully, in concert with deeper like what might be what might have been referred to as like religious truths like um the the bifurcation between religions and science that we've all kind of grown up with has never completely made sense to me and i think um yeah and that's and not to say and i'm not a particularly religious person at the moment but you know but like but to the point is i never the way people talk about it i um i i find it i find it difficult to interact with sometimes now because I just don't get, I don't understand the, um, I don't understand the the separation between it. My, my patron James Aquinas, and it's always saying it's about, you know, science and different kinds of truths. And so, um, no, the reason I want to read the book is I'm always, I'm looking for any way, I'm, can I put this, uh, any way I can look at people's actions and try to draw conclusions from their actions. So I love praxeology. Any way, anything they can offer me, a new system of, a new system of analysis when uh, dissecting uh, what's happening, I'm all for it. And so yeah. I, I hear Brett Weinstein do it on podcasts. I'm like, this is when he's at his best, you know? And so if I can read a book and kind of get some of those ideas and maybe apply that, actually, anyway, looking at what's happening, trying to dissect from different uh, starting points is a lot of fun. It's all in your head, all Ivy Tower stuff, people would say every time, but I think it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, I think it has practical use, but it's, I've definitely added this to my list. Uh, when I'm done with it, would you be willing to come on for a book club? Sure. Yeah, I could re I could awesome. redo uh, some of the stuff. I was going to cover a little bit of that. So, for sure, I could do that. Um, this is my most every guest I've had. I think is I've, I've I've gotten to talk about a book and I've gotten to come back on for a book about it. I think that's a great idea, and I actually did read this one cover to cover. So it it would be I would just have to you know refer to my copious notes that I take when I read. Not even that copious. I just do a lot of highlighting. Yeah, the I did um I did a mix of Audible and, and then like reading it. That's kind of what I do now. If I really really want a book, I just buy them both, and then if I finish it, I buy the physical copy, <laughs> so, so that I have one on the shelf just for uh, just for show and to have. It. I, I, I got to that. Mm -hmm. You know, like it is um there's a few books I have that other copies that I can't find good audio copies for. Like I found for like uh, Essex of Money Production by like uh, George. I'm not even trying to pronounce his name, Guzman. Um, and it's, it's a good it's, book's way trying to find an audio version of it. I found a guy with a speech impediment was in mind reading it. And it's like, okay, it's not an audio book. It's just a guy, he's literally stuttering with every word. And so it's it's not, who doesn't upload yet, I guess. But. Hmm. So you mentioned the pre Socratics a few times on our podcast. You mentioned um, when did people's historical time start? Like when they're, when history began, mine started the death of Socrates, and I started. I started there. Like, uh, you see, the only people I know who actually started kind of before that was the pre-Socratics. So, what do you think about the pre-Socratics? I, I know nothing. 
Um, so there was a few of them. Uh, they said stuff before Socrates and no. Um, so, so like this, this was a course that I took, uh, you know, about maybe six or seven years ago. The one, there's a few in particular that, that like Parmenides, uh, stuck out to me. Parmenides was close to a contemporary of at least Plato, uh, because Plato has a response to Parmenides. That's one of his, you know, that's one of his books. So he has Socrates interacting with or, or responding to Parmenides. Um, there was also like uh, the, the early Adam, like the, the first forms of atomism were, were developed, were at least started at that point in time. Um, this is generally speaking, as far as I understand it, just a period in like Hellenistic Greece, like directly pers- like but after the time of Troy, maybe like after that, after the time of the Odyssey, that's what I was trying to say. Like after the time of the Odyssey of the mythic, but before, as you were kind of pointing out when like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle came about. So it was, they're basically like early forms of what would be called Western philosophy. Um, and so in particular, the, uh, there's uh, then there's like uh, Zeno's paradoxes. That's another one. I Heraclitus, I think is the one. The, there's a few that kind of stick out to me. The, like I said, the Parmenides is one that I've written that I would actually like write about, and just really a couple of the ideas that were from it. Because Parmenides was one of the first people who, um, he, he, his work is where we get the formulation of man is the measure for all things, which again goes back to that subjectivity of the world. So it's so his point was like truth is whatever somebody says it is, or not exactly that, but like what reality is is what you perceive it to be, and if it's different than somebody else that you know that just means they're different whereas like plato brought us to the forms so it's like no even if there's a different perception between you or i you could then have there's this perfect representation of the thing in itself that exists and what we perceive as reality is like trying to reflect that um i've brought that up a lot just to talk about because i love pointing out how humanity is we've we we're, we still have like we've gotten really complex but there are some things that we still haven't figured out. And there are some, and in fact, we've in many ways been having the same, like similar kinds of conversations in different ages at different times in different ways. This is one of the reasons why I think of myself as like a skeptic is because, you know, you look at all that and you, and basically I looked around the world, I looked at the world around me and I noticed that everybody said that they had the truth, but that, those true that truth didn't cohere so there wasn't one perfect thing um so i brought it up just i brought them up you know not because i'm like a particular expert in it uh there's a few key insights that i like to draw upon from when i from when i read that but because i it's worth looking at this time before we even say philosophy was a thing to see that people were still trying to like figure this out right so like there were like xeno's paradoxes which was kind of like before there was even a computer or a camera, somebody was talking about how if you shot an arrow across a stadium, that half as the distance, right? that what? If you kept half in the distance of the, between the arrow and the target. Yes, that yes, that's one of them. And then the other one is that like if you were to just freeze the arrow at each point in its journey, it would never look like it's moving because it would basically just appear. But yeah, your point is the is the half the distance thing as well. And so when do you actually like? arrive so so just again the, there were these that that human beings have been like fascinated and figure and trying to figure these things out for as long as we've been a species and i think that's i think that's really cool um i think that's something that we can share and share in for humanity and i think that 
we don't the fact that we don't see that as represented in in a world with our technological advancement is just a symptom of the rot that exists within the governing structures yeah i agree with that now there's a part i'm listening to uh conflict and tealens the two cast guys and they read books and it's a really good podcast and they recently did a Die Amarna, I think I can't pronounce it, but it's, it's in Greek, but it's a, an early Aristotle book. And mm. uh, he kind of, the Aristotle is someone of different views of like science and the senses and how the brain works. And I think they, they put out like Aristotle was talking about these things and they point out people who were debating those topics. And I was still debating these topics today with this new frame, this new frame, the new, new, with bigger words pretty much. Yeah. So, it was interesting. So, I don't want to get too personal here, but you, you've mentioned uh, a lot of people that kind of post libertarian moment or very easy religious or finding religion. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you're not currently a super religious, but would you be, uh, you also mentioned you're a skeptic. Like, religiously, where would you, if you had to place yourself, where would you place yourself? I'm I'm not a very good Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm um, Catholic. No, I was very, I mean, I've, I've I, I, Jack Posobiec once said on like Tim Pool or something that like saying you were raised Catholic is the same thing as you're saying you're not. And I kind of agree with him when he says that. So like, I'm just not a good one. Um, I, I mean, I mean, insofar as like God is concerned, I've never considered myself an atheist. Um, I'm maybe just not, the, like I said, I'm just not a very, I'm not re- religiously observant right now, but I've always loved conversations about these kinds of ideas. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I, I think, I think the reality is, is I'm, I'm somebody who struggles with his faith and I don't have any, sh- and I don't really have any shame in saying that because I know, I kind of know that that's like, that that's just a real thing that a lot of people have. Right. Um, and it's always interesting because it is one of those situations where I'm like, I'm not religious enough for the religious people and I'm not, uh, atheist or secular enough for the atheist secularists. Uh, so I, t- you know, this, that's where the skepticism again comes in. I, I wrote in the song once that like, uh, those on top of the fence are just as likely to be shot by their allies as the ones they might not yet despise. Um, and it's like, <clears throat> you know, like being a fence sitter. And my point, my, the thing I said in the song was like, so being uncaring and choose, like choose for choose a side. You kind of have to choose a side. Cause if you stand in the middle, you're, you know, you might get shot, especially if there are bullets flying. Um, and I, I think, I think unfortunately we're in times like that. So yeah, it's, I mean, I wouldn't like, I don't pretend to be like a theologian, right? Like what I do is closer to philosophy as we said. Um, but I don't look at like philosophy as being at odds with religion per se. Like Socrates, Socrates wasn't questioning the gods. He was just put to death for that. Right. Like, like Socrates was questioning the power structures in Athens and finding out that they didn't really know what they were talking about. And so, you know, he had the youths questioning the gods, right? Like that's what he was put to death for. And, and, you know, understand, really understanding that story is, um, I think, I think vital to, to Western civilization. Um, so, you know, that's, it's, I, uh, this is yeah. a great book by Austin Herman uh, called The Cave in the Light, History of, History of Aristotle versus Plato, throughout history, it's a great book. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically starts it with Socrates' death, I guess where he begins it, that's, like, um, I think it was Peter Creed who said, uh, Western civilization is defined by the death of two men, Jesus and Socrates. <laughs> I think that's a I think that's a fair quote because like that is the defining moment that's taking place in civilization. I think um, I think that's a great way of putting it. And you know, to the extent of like if you were to ask me three people that have profoundly influenced me, it would and, and this this may seem presumptuous, but for me it's Socrates, Jesus, and Nietzsche. Like those if you wanna like 
if you really, if I was trying to distill it down into three people, it's those three things. And yeah, there's a lot of dissonance in there. And, you know, hey, so hopefully it's something that's worth consuming, that's entertaining. And, you know, if you think so, make sure you subscribe at benawake.com. <laughs> Good stuff, most important. Um, I've never read Nietzsche. I, 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 tr I tried when I was like, let's see, 17. When I was 17, I wanted to read philosophy. I picked up uh, Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason and Beyond Good and Evil by Nietzsche. Okay. Didn't understand any of it, put them back down, and then just a full year. And I still could not get myself to properly read Beyond Good and Evil. Like, I've tried again, like maybe two years ago. I still cannot. I don't know. Maybe it's not, I'm not getting it, but. I, what do you find interesting in Nietzsche and that appealing in Nietzsche? So, well, the book I read, I read some of Twilight of the Idols, but if I'm being honest, I didn't retain that much of it. It wasn't a very, uh, just because there was, I don't, I don't even remember why. I think I just wasn't going to class. Um, but it, the, uh, the one that I, the one that really stuck with me is, 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 uh, the gay science, um, La Gaia Scientia, uh, or the Frohlich Wissenschaft, which would be the German, and so the the gay science means like the happy way of living life um, was at least the way it was taught to me. So what I I mean, what I found, I guess what I found reading Nietzsche was stuff that I thought made a lot of sense compared to somebody like an Immanuel Kant. Like there was always this part of me reading Kant that was kind of like, okay, like eh, okay, I guess. You know, like this is all very logical. It's all very well laid out, but like, it, it, you know, his whole thing of his whole th like like Kant's whole thing about like the only moral thing is the thing that you do for the sake in and of itself, and that you don't and that you don't actually like be rewarded from it, or at least that's my understanding of of what his position is for like what is like when something is moral. I found just to be so much work, and not work from the standpoint of like you know you you need to do yourself do things for that. It's like, well. Frankly, I always thought I always was more partial to the Randian or the egoist form, the general egoist formulation of like self-interest is a mutually beneficial thing. And of course, if we look at something like I think evolutionary biology, we're much closer to an egoist perspective, perhaps. I don't want to say that really, because like that's because I don't want because like the egoists aren't exactly right, especially like the like the acolytes of Rand. Um yeah. But, I'd say psychological egotism, and like the, I think that's what the people who kind of evolutionary sense say everything we've done is born out of selflessness, and that's why we are geared towards that. I think that is a better. That can work into a Catholic framework because they were the sin, therefore we're selfish. We got to rise above our base instincts. Human beings are psychological egotists. That's why I draw. That's why I think a lot of brand stuff makes sense to people who are of that mind. Mm -hmm. It's why it clicks. I say. Yeah, and so what I found in Nietzsche was just a really. <clears throat> powerful way of analyzing and in fact like one that i will say like when i read it i wasn't i wasn't in some respects i don't even think i was prepared for it you know what i mean i was just able to to, to download the information um because frankly it's one of those things of i'll just something will be happening i'll be watching something i'm like oh that's what he was talking about in that in that part um and and so just you know the idea of the death of god that was the one thing that was one of the things where it's like so you realize, so you hear growing up, if you grow up in like a religious household, like God is dead, right? You've seen, you, you'll have like seen that, whether it's in like a Christian movie that's, you know, saying that that's the bad guy or maybe some reference in pop culture and, or like, you know, graffitied or something like that. And like, what was, and in fact, I even heard that from professors before I read Nietzsche about how like, this is one of the big things that he said, but that's not what Nietzsche says. What Nietzsche says is God is dead and we have killed him. 
It's a completely different, you know, right? And so it's, mm-hmm. and again, the, those are like the parts. That's what fascinates me about like the exploration of ideas is really trying to get inside um, of those types of things. And what I would maybe say now is, I think what I think what Nietzsche grasped grasped then is far more apparent today in terms of the herd of humanity and the idea that like the will of the whole is something that can be if not completely constructed, molded and diverted in one direction or another. And him capturing that in so far as how the church used it to influence people um, and how, but like, and how like that was good and like the good aspects, but then the bad aspects of it, uh, you know, in particular he hits, it's funny cause you read Nietzsche and he talks about the asceticism of the church, right? Like the fact that they go without and they, they encourage people to be poor right those you know blessed are the poor in spirit or you know like and like but like in a physical sense because of the you know the idea of like you should go without and it's funny reading that because like that doesn't that's not really the i don't think that's really the christianity of today and maybe in fact it's not that because just the world changed so much with uh with with the industrial revolution um so I've written a few times, a few of the other ones, like big insights I've written about a couple of them is also the uh, like the power of laughter and just that inevitably the moralizers of every age will be chased away by laughter because there's this eternal, there's just this eternal wave. There's an eternal ebb and flow to existence. And, you know, and so like what matters then is how you position yourself to kind of like ride that wave. That's, that's, that's really how I look at being <laughs> in a sense. Um, and you know, sometimes you can like, you can get farther than others and blah, blah, blah. But I think there's, I think there's always an element of that. So those are some of the insights I'd say from Nietzsche, but, um, yeah, the gay science is what I read, which is like supposed to be a very good breath of his thought. I think beyond good and evil was later in his career, but I could be wrong about that, but that's one that I do need to pick up and read more. Cause I think that's where he actually gets into the will of power more so than he does in, in the gay science. And there's a lot of philosophers who I have noticed that you read their work and you don't get it. You get it later, and you see people who talk about the work like that's what you got from that. That's not what I got from that. And it makes you wonder like how much is their work? How much outside like I say the Aristotelian Thomas school because they are very very plain and they have exactly what they want to say. A lot of other philosophers I feel like have to read into, and uh, so I think that's fine. I think there's positives in that. Um, but it's something I've been having to notice. I'm trying to. I'm, I'm only able to read like Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, not trying to read other philosophers. I'm like, why can't this just be plain? Like, like reading uh, Foucault, it's all flowery language and it's all beautiful. And I'm like, this is great. I don't know what he's saying, but mm-hmm. it's great. I just um, try to get past that and try to actually read it and try to understand it. Uh, Some who's like an Aristotelian mind is having a, people have a hard time with the thing. Yeah, you know, there's a couple things I want to say to that. One is you're entirely right. Um, it happens to everybody and there's a f- and there's a few reasons for why one of the reasons is that a good philosophy is supposed to try and change the way you view the world right because it's thinking about thinking about something and it's trying to get every single aspect of that out and so to the extent that that's di- like like i said reading kant for me was always very convoluted because i just it, for me it didn't really comport to the world that i saw or you know i thought or i thought it was like too it was too much at, at times and again i'm a kant scholar could probably dismantle me and explain why why he's you know why he's the best philosopher ever that's not really what i'm driving at here um but the 
but you know, as it relates to the complicated way in which people write in the past, that's something I've been thinking about because it was something that I changed at the beginning and I was really working on and I, and I continually work on is trying not to have a really heavy prose um, where it's required. I do it, but I also try to write in a more popular style that more people can identify with today. And I think there, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hot air in the conversation about people's attention spans and, um, and all that and all that stuff. But it is fair to say that, you know, most people have a very surface level opinion of most things, right? Because most people haven't spent the time to go through and study most things. This is the epistemic humility that I think flows from a skeptical position and why you can kind of then start to recognize patterns in people. So like, that like it, but one pattern is the fact that a lot of stuff in the olden times is still pretty complex, even when they've tried to reinterpret it. Right, like uh, the new, like the Bible, the New International Version of the Bible. I just can't read. Um, I, I grew up on the New American Standard, so it's always really, really strange, and it is difficult to get that kind of translation. But it, it is again going back to what we were talking about of like that ebb and flow of history. It's worth pointing out. Because like the best minds that humanity has had to offer are still difficult to read in 2022, right? Like it's still tough to get through Hegel. Some of that is his prose for sure, right? Like Bob Murphy reinterpreted human action and it's a lot less, it's a lot thinner, right? And so, but like, but there's, but, but then you have to say, well, what was it about the people then that had the attention span to be able to consume thousand page treatises? Um, that's why I talk about things in terms of like media and consumption and where those differences lie between like the podcasting and between the writing, uh, or like, you know, reading a book or writing an article. And at least for me, that's why I, I focus on shorter stuff now. And I do like, I like working on longer things, but they take more time. That makes sense. That makes sense. It's, it's the weird thing I noticed. I was reading, uh, Aquinas. Mm -hmm. And someone told me, he's like, you know, he wrote that for like high school students. <laughs> Like he wrote that to be a high school, like a basic theology of high school students. I'm like, don't make me feel dumb. I feel smart. I'm reading books that have Latin in it. And he just came by and just shot me down. Yeah, but you know, but you also then have to take into account that like high school then was like it was like probably closer to what we consider to be like the the extended adolescence of like modern humanity what when you read uh the the hunter gatherer's guide to the 21st century, like like this extended adolescence in weird cultures like Western enlightenment individualist developed something or the other is like that's or something that's the weird acronym um but basically like these uh, the hyper novelty of our age this extended adolescence is something that like yeah it's a problem <laughs> you know and i think and i think we're starting to see the i think we're really starting to see the ramifications of that coupled with something like social media no it's i have friends who are um probably gonna be staying with their parents until about 25 Maybe seventy, and it's like it's not that they don't want to leave, but they they can't afford to leave. Not getting not getting much of roommates. It's like people are going to be stuck at home longer. People are going to be maturing over a longer period of time. It's not going to be like you're eighteen, you're an adult now. Now it's like no, you're twenty seven. Now you're an adult. Like it's I just see it going down that route. Um, got a joke that my only guy I know who moved out of his parents' house has uh, three roommates, and they're all also couples. And so I made a joke. Well, we invented multi generation of households in my place. Wait, 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 wait. Three couples living in one house? Yeah. So two of them, 
can two I, couples, two couples, can I one pry how many, how many kitchens and bathrooms? Oh, one kitchen, two baths. You're kidding yeah. me. No, no. Two couples. One guy is what uh, part of the country. Florida. Wow. Yeah, I know. And it's like they can afford a house. Which is near what part of Florida? Central Florida. Okay. So, yeah. So it, it's nuts though. It's kind of like you see all these people and it's like, wow, is it, we're going to reinvent multi-generation of family households, but through fun groups, which is Honestly, I wouldn't be opposed to that. Like, I wouldn't be opposed to the idea of bringing back a bigger family households and reinventing the family as a friend group. I think that would be progress away from what we have now. But still, it's it's something that we're going to uh, see how that changes going forward. It's going to be interesting to watch. You know, you're, what you're really driving at here is such an interesting conversation about, like, how familial ties are cut. Um, you know, like I, I stayed living with my dad longer than I would have wanted to under, you know, if I could have, if I could afford it to move out, I would have not because I don't like my dad, but because I wanted to be on my own and be more independent. Um, but you know, with like the student debt and, and just, and, and for the same kind of thing, it's, it's a matter of affording it. And, you know, there are reasons you could get into reasons for that, right? Like of the fact that basically the, you know, the government has said, and like the boomer generation believes that the that that real estate must be an always appreciating asset has made it so that like the bust never came that should have come in the housing market and you know somebody like stefan molyneux will also point out how when you have a constant wave of immigration that also holds housing prices up as well such that you do have to have three couples living in a single house i mean i'm thankful enough to where i have my own space um but i'm in a split level so i'm in like garden level and then there's an ups there's there's two floors above me thankfully it's family above me so you know we get along well but we wouldn't get along well if I didn't have my own kitchen um, yeah. and not be, and not for, for my sake, but for their sake, cause I can be a little messy sometimes. And, you know, and just, and same thing with the bathroom stuff, right? Um, there's what's interesting is how much we've lost in terms of those, those like previous heretofore very like conscious bonds that people would get and keep cross generationally speaking. Um, I guess, thankfully, my grandparents emigrated here uh, and then on, you know, and then my dad's side who had been here for a while, like you're still still would see my extended family on a pretty regular basis. Um, but that's changed over the years. But I guess but for some people, but, you know, like I said, I was raised Catholic. There were eight. There were eight brothers and sisters to see. And like each of them had five or six to seven to eight kids. And a lot of them have like eight kids now, too. So it's like, you know, so there's plenty. So it so it had that cultural there was the cultural reinforcement in that respect. Uh, I think that that probably came from something like that. Um, man, it is something that we've, it is something that I wouldn't say that we've lost cause I haven't lost it per se, but I feel it does. I feel bad when I realize that for some people it is right. And it's, um, and there's like that dual tension aspect of it too. Cause it's like, okay, so stay with your parents for longer, but then like, even if you do that, like the culture still set, even though that's maybe the most feasible thing. And historically mm -hmm. speaking was the thing you would do given yeah. the context, like still the culture reacts negatively against that. And, you know, yeah. in the context of like dating or something, perhaps for good reason, right. Yeah. It's, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting it's, little tightrope. Is, um, is going, uh, I have, I have friends who are very Latin. That's from Venezuela. Uh, the daughters will not be leaving the house until they have, well, basically they're going to be husbands in. That's the best that's family spend. They're gonna bring husbands into the family. Yeah. And I have yeah. other people I know who are like, when my kids are they tend to kick him out of the house. <laughs> and I'm like, you make yourself homeless. I mean, I mean it's what you're gonna be doing now. Um it, it's very 
I put it. So Scott Hahn wrote a great book called uh, The First Society. It's all about um, the destruction of uh, the sacrament of marriage has led to the Adam's and the individual. And it's uh, he goes through like how family structures used to be. You wouldn't you know go hire a nanny, you would rely on your grandparents. You know, we've we've um, we've moved away from relying on family, relying on everyone else's family, just atomized individual to where it's no longer like you don't rely on family, you don't trust your parents, you don't want to be with the family. And that is like that is replaced the fundamental unit of society as a family to the individual and individual to trust in the family. So it's Yeah, I think um I think a few years ago I would have had more to say against that position. <laughs> and I and I really see um I think I see that side of the coin more. I think where I think where it gets muddy is the flate the degree to which people conflate, because I think you said the proper term, when people conflate atomism with individualism. Um, because I don't think I don't think individualism is incompatible with like a holistic view of humanity, including the fact that we're social creatures and you know, it, and uh, in that I hang the hat on Mises, it's like theoretically speaking, it's completely copacetic, like it, it, it coheres. Um, so like, but what's in, I think what's interesting or not what's interesting, what's terrifying is the way that that atomistic tendency is, um, is exemplified by the government, right? In terms of like, you know, this is this is the age old welfare question, but but less so the government is the way that we is perhaps the degree to which people were so were and are so willing to outsource this outsource, these sorts of tasks and duties and responsibilities. And it's, you know, what starts a little bit can, you know, what, what starts as a little drip of water will eventually wear through a boulder, right? This is, this is a, this is a truism of physics, right? Like erosion hap erosion's going to, I don't know if physics is the right word. Erosion is going to happen over time is what I'm trying to say. And I think one of the things we're dealing with going back to the ebb and flow is like, we've been, we've been edging away. Um, we, we've been eroding away these basic structures of how humans have conceptualized. Remember that, remember the inherent subjectivity to existence that we were, that we kind of started talking about. Right. But like we human beings have been it, it, like it, it, that we've been pushed and farther and farther away by much of the powers that be from those basic categorizations such to the point of now I have to have a conversation about whether not even whether CRT is real, but what, you know, like, but the, there, there's a legit, there, there are plenty of smart people out there who will make the case that CRT is a boogeyman of the right. Right. Salon just ran their hit piece on James Lindsay just the other day. And for every person, every person who's getting mad at James Lindsay I'm not saying he was, I'm not saying he's, he's an angel. Cause of course I wouldn't say something like that. Like I said, it's about what can you get from people? Not in, you know, and what side are they on for better or worse? Salon.com is saying he's on the right, you know? So pay attention to that. Um, as far as, as far as those of us who find ourselves, you know, just saying like, yeah, okay, that's what, that's what I am is not, I'm not a leftist. So that means I'm on the right. Um, and you know, and, and my opinions matter too. Uh, and I have certain way and, you know, and we're, and you're kind of part of this is because we've eroded so much of those, like, because the, maybe you might say the chaotic left has eroded away at these basic categorizations, right? Like the entire conception of queer theory, something that's been active, something that people will go and get, like, I don't have a PhD next to my name. Let me be completely clear. I don't even have a BA next to my name. Okay. I have an AGS. That's what I got next to my name. If I was going to sign up to it. So you can take it for what it's worth. 
But people will go out there and get a PhD in something like queer theory. And what queer theory purports to do is tear away the basic categorizations by which we conceptualize the world because they consider those to be oppressive. Like that's the, that, and that, and we're not talking about college classrooms. We're talking about elementary school. So don't pretend that, and we're past the point now where we can pretend that these sorts of things aren't going to have negative consequent negative consequences at a cultural and societal level as we scale upwards through society. Do you, do you really look at the Western world as it exists right now? And do you say that it is in a state of, of flourishing? Of course not. Right. You know, like we've got it good. We've got it better than most people throughout our history. That's one of the reasons why it hasn't gotten that bad. But, you know, I don't know. I, yeah. you know, it's, it's like, um, we hear now and have outsourcing things. Like, people, um, I saw an article, I can't remember what I saw, but a woman was like, see, felt guilty about leaving the kid in public school and going back to work. And the article was like going over how that's a, a, a fem, uh, anti feminist mindset. And I was like, you, you're destroying things. Like, they're, they all just, they, they want to destroy the family, they're openly trying to destroy the family. And these articles were like, you should, you should, shaming women for feeling guilty about leaving the kid to strangers all day. It's weird. It's unnatural. And it's, 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 um, so I, don't, I just know the time. Uh, I'm sorry. We're gonna wrap this up real quick, actually. Um, I just know the time it was. Uh, LB, what, LB, what people find you at? You can find me on all social media at the LB Muniz. And of course, please go to binawake.com, subscribe with your email address. I have, um, more premium content that I'm going to start releasing on a regular basis. So make sure you're, make sure you're signed up. You're going to get free previews of that stuff. If you're on the free list, uh, just to kind of, you know, actually provide value for people who want to maybe help me, help me make this something that I can dedicate even more time to as far as research goes. So beenawake.com at the LB Muniz. Wonderful. Well, uh, sort of want to sort of everybody, but we went for an hour and I, uh, I have, I have four other podcasts this week. I got to get back to prepping for them as well. So, um, LB, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an absolute blast. Uh, everyone listening, uh, go read some more books. Oh,